All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the individual's opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis of investment decisions. Hey, Zach Valenti here. Just a quick note before we get started. We had to do this interview over the phone and the audio cuts out here and there. Sorry about that. We do think the content more than makes up for it. Thanks for listening. We shouldn't be locked in the walled gardens. It's sort of like take the best properties of the land party where you play Quake and put it together with Minecraft and put it together with web site or app building and have people do it uh, as well as consume it. Create as well as consume. Welcome to the Internet 3.0, a podcast exploring the past, present, and future of our online world with the leaders busy building it. Last episode, we stopped by Union Square Ventures in New York City to talk with Albert Wenger about how our digital lives will evolve as we transition into the knowledge age. In this episode, you, my co-host Ryan Shea, co-founder of Blockstack, and myself are going to get into something groovy. No, this isn't a mistake. You're listening to a scene from Sam Raimi's classic horror film, Evil Dead 2. The hero, Ash Williams, is arming himself to fight zombies. And when I say arming himself, I mean literally replacing the arm he lost to said zombies with a chainsaw. And then using his freakish chainsaw arm to saw off a shotgun. Groovy. Seriously, if you haven't seen this movie, it's great. And if you're wondering what all this has to do with the internet, well, today we're talking to the Ash Williams of the web, pioneer Brendan Eich. You've probably heard of JavaScript, which has become the most widely used programming language since its invention in 1995. Brendan built that in 10 days. For most folks, that's a life's work. For Mr. Eich, it was just the beginning. From his time at Netscape through co-founding Mozilla and building the Firefox browser, which you've probably used, Brendan Eich has been a leader of online innovation. But talking about it's one thing. What's it like to live it? I kind of used Ash as a, my spirit animal. With JavaScript, I had to do a rush job, and I had to convince Netscape doubters that there were believers as well. Mark Andreessen was a believer. But other people in Netscape were like, why do we need JavaScript if we've got Java? Because they were trying to do the Java deal. JavaScript, as Mark said, was supposed to work right in your page. You would put the code right in the page. Easily said, I had to figure out how to do it because HTML at that time didn't have any way to embed code uh, without it showing up as, you know, mismarked up text. So I I had to do all this rush job and I felt like I was Ash cutting off my hand because it turned bad, putting a chainsaw on and then using the chainsaw to to hack my way through the problem. So, yeah, I was in this this war with with sort of skeletons and zombies and deadites and I, I, I got some scars for it. So what are Brendan and his scars up to these days? Oh, they're working on this groovy new thing called fixing the internet. Specifically, he wants to clean up the digital advertising ecosystem, which has become increasingly toxic for pretty much everyone. To do this, he's created a new web browser. Do you want a web browser made for the internet of today? We integrated technology that automatically blocks trackers, annoying ads, and shields everything that can cramp your style and destruct your privacy. Try Brave. It's faster, safer, and ad-free. 
You're probably familiar with Google Chrome, Apple Safari, or Internet Explorer. And if you've used any of them, you've probably also considered installing an ad blocker. It's a small add-on to, well, block ads. Brave is taking a new batteries-included approach to the future of web browsing, blocking all ads by default and introducing a new opt-in model for advertising. The Brave browser couldn't accomplish all of this without Brendan's other big innovation, the basic attention token, or as he calls it, the BAT. It's a cryptocurrency that enables a new framework for online advertising based on this radical idea. Human attention has inherent value. But before we can talk about how to fix the internet, it's important to think about how we define what the internet even is. How would you distinguish the internet from the web, which is not a thing I think most people do? Right. People don't know if it's a search engine or a browser. They don't know if it's internet or web. I actually think internet needs to make a comeback. I, I was annoyed the New York Times started lower casing it. Uh, it's a proper noun. It's a single thing because it is the the internet of networks. It's the internetworked uh, subnets that we all know from our own land days or from running a network, if you ever did that in the old days. And and the same thing is uh, possible with blockchains. I, I, you know, there's various approaches, but um, th there's a, a, at least a couple that are trying to be the internet of blockchains. Um, internet is a powerful idea and web is a little bit spidery and people think it's passe and, and oh, use the web. Uh, I, use a, I use Facebook or, you know, I use Instagram. To me, there's something uh, I think stronger in internet than web. But I'm, I'm a web, <laughs> I'm a web pioneer, so I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't say that too much. I think both are useful, and it'd be good if if we understood what really was involved. Uh, the idea with the web is you have this sort of um, more symmetric creator-consumer um, connected spider web where people can just crawl around anywhere they want. They can surf, which is a mixed metaphor. Spiders don't surf. People don't surf spider web. <laughs> um, but, but there's something about it that sounds like it's got a lot of connection points. And that's accurate. Internet, a little too techy and brainy, but it gets together the idea that we have these subsidiary networks that are then stitched together through routing and peering that allow us to talk to anybody in the world. And that's an amazing idea if, if you can understand it. And that uh, the, uh, internet of blockchain projects may have success that way too, because I don't think there'll be a single blockchain to rule them all anytime soon. Um, and, and, and when you think about like Facebook instant articles in their app, they, they parse the HTML into a bunch of native widgets, right? It's a subset of HTML that they render using a custom engine. So um, they can go really fast, but it's still kind of the web. I mean, all these things are like different presentations of web content. And the thing about web content that's cool is it's pretty easy to write. A lot of people learn how to do markup. Um, it's, not, it's not as easy as just using a, a WYSIWYG editor, but I've seen a, a, a large range of, of you know, people who are proficient enough to type, to touch type, just learn how to do HTML by hand and stick with it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just, I just want to emphasize that uh, from a user experience point of view, the web is a subset of the internet, right? So the web is, you, maybe we can just think of it as anything that people access, access through their web browser. Um, but for native applications uh, that don't necessarily have web views inside of them, most native applications, we would consider that the internet, not the web. And then there's a lot of other applications that can transmit over, data over the internet that 
wouldn't use web technologies and so we would just consider them as the internet as well is that absolutely fair to say? like yeah yeah sure like email is an obvious category dns um yes just like in the 90s there was gopher and waste and these things people have forgotten um ftp which is pretty much a security problem now uh <laughs> http swept them all that's one th other thing i'll say is you'll see uh something that's fit enough this is like a biological uh analogy you see a, a successful um gene that has um, great advantage in conferred immunity, autoimmunity, for instance, and it'll sweep an entire population. You see uh, JavaScript sweep, uh, not just because it was the only language, like there were plugins in the old days and there were browsers that tried things like VBScript, like Microsoft did, which by the way, if I hadn't done JavaScript, it would have been Visual Basic Script. So <laughs> um, you're, you're welcome. Uh, but uh, HTML had competitors from the plugins and from XML in the sort of W3C XML utopia phase that caused us to do HTML5. Yeah. Um, but HTTP swept away gopher ways FTP. Uh, JavaScript is still sweeping away things like Dart, where Google threw a lot of money at it and thought they could replace JavaScript. And they I couldn't think they even, gave up on that. They couldn't even get the Dart VM into Chrome. And, and so that tells you something. There, there are just rules of uh, thermodynamics, the laws of thermodynamics and other fundamental physical laws that limit how much energy you can throw at something rolling a, a, a heavy stone up a tall hill when there's a much easier path that the, uh, another stone is already already rolling down. And so I think, you know, why well, I said there's not going to be one blockchain to rule them all very soon. Well, it'll be interesting to see if something does sweep the field eventually. We get that mythical super high throughput, a low fee and anonymity uh, blockchain. That would be awesome. But it's it's not in not here yet. Brendan extends the evolutionary biological perspective he has on web technology to the business model of the web as well. Uh, evolution of advertising on the web was uh, this sort of Darwinian accidental process. It was not designed. It was built on JavaScript. <laughs> My fault, right? Um, and the intermediaries sort of captured the host. There's a kind of fungus that zombifies ants and makes the ant climb 21 centimeters off the rainforest floor, hang upside down, and get taken over by the fungus to be turned into a spore distribution device. Uh, this is sort of what ad tech does to <laughs> legitimate parties like publishers and advertisers in this current system. If thinking about advertising, you have a traditional like newspaper or print media format. You have some space you give up for ads. Right there is a conflict. You're giving up space. The ad is possibly conflicting with the editorial material around it from the first party, the publisher. So there's long been a, a history of doing direct sales where you can have the editorial team match the ad to the content. And this can be done on digital media as well as traditional print media. And it can be done well, but you have to have large scale online because a lot of publishers, there are you know, a billion websites or more, according to Google, I think they stopped counting. Uh, a lot of websites don't have the scale to get a direct sales deal with the advertiser. So you go through intermediaries like ad exchanges and supply-side platforms that work with publishers. The advertisers work with so-called demand-side platforms. When I uh, had time to think deeply about this, this sort of how is the web-funded problem and what can be done to improve it, get rid of the parasites, uh, I thought back to the, the way Google had a pretty clean search deal with Firefox and how that did not hold up well over the long term, in my opinion. If you are doing a search ad business, which is a very nice ad business because search has such strong intent signaling from the user, 
and and Google did it right. They put, you know, I don't think this was totally original to them, but they put these text ads in the upper right. They did not try to fool you into thinking they're part of the organic search results. But if you didn't click on those search ads, you went off following one of the organic links. Maybe you got distracted. Maybe you fumbled around following links on media sites or e-commerce sites. You ended up um, converting if you bought online at all at some other site that Google couldn't see. So they had, as a public company by late 2004, this sort of imperative to keep growing and to follow the user to those other sites. And the only way to do that was uh, through cookies, and that's what DoubleClick was king of. So they bought DoubleClick. And that led to this entire Lumascape uh, middle player problem where you have these sort of intermediaries who track users, who build dossiers on users, who sometimes become uh, conflicted with their, their their partners or their clients because they're building a data business while they're trying to optimize ad revenue. And th- those can conflict in several ways. It sometimes has uh, non-transparency such that the gross that comes in from the left side where the money's flowing in from the advertiser toward the publisher on the right who gets the net net <laughs> is, is um, not clearly stated and the, the intermediary takes a larger fee than they promised. Just taking too much of a fee is only part of the problem. The ad exchanges are rather open to anybody because they take a fee as well. And so malware vendors, ransomware notably vendors have found it useful to buy cheap, you know, 40 cent for a thousand impression ad slots on publisher pages. And the malware vendor puts what looks like an ad in that slot but it's got a steganographically encoded exploit kit loader. It's actually folded into the image and there's a little JavaScript that claims it's doing you know, color correction and it decodes that exploit kit loader and avows it and away you go. You're, you're gonna get ransomware on a PC or you possibly the PC gets converted to be part of a botnet. Ransomware was on the New York Times in March, 2016. It's on BBC Online, it was on AOL. Those were not direct sales deals. New York Times did not do a direct deal with a ransomware vendor. It came through an ad exchange. Mm. It came through all this indirection. The dual of that is ad fraud, which is a huge problem. Professor Augustin Fu at NYU estimated $16 billion plus out of $80 billion gross ad spend in the U.S. last year. Uh, you know, some people say it's $88 billion. Globally, it's like $200 billion. $16 billion went to fraudsters. And the fraudsters are, instead of putting fake ads with malware, they're doing the reverse. They're taking a good ad and putting it on a fake publisher page and having a fake bot user interact with it or possibly a human in a very low uh, wage region of the world. And they're having uh, the technology they construct to fake the publisher side out, fool the ad, fool the confirmation pixel and the double verify script into thinking this is a real person and this is really the New York Times. And these ad fraudsters get paid. That's the amazing thing. Hmm. They get paid because all the JavaScript that is loaded seems to think it's a legitimate ad impression or ad action. I also felt it as a user. The ads were cluttering my experience. I felt this creepy sense of being tracked, as we all do when there's retargeting going on. Retargeting is when you, perhaps you you just are about to go on a trip. You shop for some new luggage. Maybe you buy it at a brick and mortar store. And then you... <laughs> You come back from the trip and you're still being hit with ads for that luggage. It makes no sense. It annoys you. It drives you to get an ad blocker. But that retargeting does sometimes cajole or nag or remind, in the best case, somebody to buy something they forgot about. And therefore, it gives a slight improvement in performance and it is used. Criteo is mostly a retargeting business. Facebook 
mostly retargeting. It's just a huge, huge, uh, you know, incremental optimization for wow. scale players. All this stuff bothered me personally. It also bothered me thinking about how the ecosystem was uh, going down. It was it was being choked out by parasites and, and fraudsters and, and criminals, the malware vendors. So when I understood this whole system and all its its uh, horror, <laughs> I realized something needed to be done, and that's that's that led to Brave. <laughs> huh. Tell us a little bit about. Uh, where Brave is today? What's the what is the current status? What's on the horizon? So we've been growing continuously. We passed 3.1 million monthly active users. We have uh, over 18,000 publishers, uh, sort of self-service verified and getting paid through the basic attention token and with our partner Uphold, uh, often doing the exchange to fiat. Since a lot of publishers want want fiat, we have. Um, over 400,000 user wallets. Um, we're giving out basic attention token grants every month to users. You can just get them in your desktop Brave through the payments panel. Android uh, support is coming in a little over a month. And um, we're, we're, we're just working on growth. That's our first goal, to get enough users to then have uh, the ability to, to move the needle with uh, the ecosystem with standards bodies, with um, certainly with advertisers we're already talking to who will, will do trials with us because they're interested in a better model that gets around ad blocking in a clean way that also complies with the, the data regulations, data and privacy regulations in Europe that you may have heard about. Gotcha. And do, do you have a good grasp of why people choose to use Brave as one of their browsers and then why they decide to make it their main browser? We mainly ask them and we get told uh, by fans on social media. So by polling and by having people come to us, we, we hear we're much faster, which we also measure on top news and media sites. We are two to eight times faster on mobile and, you know, desktop varies with broadband, but people notice like 2x performance wins just by default blocking aggressively. Like today on Twitter came up the topic hmm. of Hulu. Hulu has been fighting ad blockers. Someone said he was using a, a special a DNS uh, server or, or et cetera, host file configuration to block ad domains. And because of that, Hulu was sending him blank minutes long ad ad slots, ad, ad fake ads or, <laughs> you know, empty ad slots. Yeah. And he said, how does it work in Brave? And it turns out we we block so aggressively and early that we work fine in Hulu. There are no ads. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like what you're saying is the main reason for Brave is actually the speed and less so the ad blocking and other features. I mean, those are great, but the speed it, it's is... All, it's always a mix, but you're right. Speed works. Now, when you look at the history of browsers, in some ways, Netscape killed Mosaic by being faster. We were all working hard to make things work well over modems in the time, you know, 56K or ISDN yeah. modems. And Firefox had this reputation for speed. The Opera people said it was unfair, but Firefox also was open source, had tabs and pop-up blocking and no ads. Opera at the time had a free model that had ads in the user interface of the browser. So, you know, Firefox won against Internet Explorer by being faster, quote-unquote. And Chrome certainly was faster, maybe not 3x faster, like they said, but 1.3x is good. And Brave is faster. So speed works, speed what pops for most users. Now, a lot of our early adopters also liked the privacy. They liked the ad blocking. They, they like the vision that goes beyond just defensive uh, protection to using the, the bat for yes. reconnecting funding to their favorite sites. It makes me think of what Google's doing. Google's like, obsessed with getting everything to to be as fast as possible, uh, getting pages to load quickly. They even have Google AMP, right? Even taking websites that are bad at 
loading things slowly and they pre-render the application the the pages for a lot of content they 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 tie it into their search uh business too which is a little bit uh scary i think for the publishers that i've talked to sometimes they feel like they're being commodified i think they may have fixed this in the latest amp but for a long time it it looked like it was on the publisher site but the url was actually a google url um and so, you know, th- there's this risk with things like AMP and Facebook Instant Articles that news gets broken down into bite-sized pieces. The publisher is turned into a commodity. For sure, yeah. And it's not great for them. The iron iron law of wages, the iron law of, of capital means that's going to get ground down to low, low profits and un- very much unbranded content. Publishers don't want that. The conversation quickly moved from what isn't working on the web today to what might be possible in the future. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what you see as really the future of web browsing, the internet. Uh, Brave, obviously, is looking to play a very big role in that. You already have an incredible traction so far. Um, what do you see are, is the future? What is going to define uh, the web, the internet of the future? You know, it's a good question. I, I've been working on this for a long time, but the, all the crystal ball uh, gazing from the past that looked out 10 years or beyond was pretty wrong um <laughs> things like uh, a, a scroll a data scroll you could unroll that became like a, a touch screen um haven't seen that yet <laughs> could be built probably would be expensive and difficult to get really usable uh ar style glasses those are coming but the cost isn't reduced and you do not want to wear a battery and a radio on your head so of you know course, some yeah. of this some of this stuff is, is aggressive and it, it it's going to take longer than you think um I think uh, the web is kind of immortal. You, you see people talking about the death of the web every 10 years or so. <laughs> um, certainly with Windows lock-in being where Microsoft preferred to go after it, it conquered Netscape, it kind of felt punished by antitrust action in the US and yeah. found standards bodies difficult. So it went back to Windows lock-in with Windows Vista. That didn't work out. Hmm. And they missed mobile. Uh, totally. They missed, you know, Ericsson did these great glass touchscreen phones, but then the iPhone hit it. Well, even now with the iPhone and, and Android, we have threat threats to the web. We do. And, and yet the native, a lot of the native apps, the big ones included, have web views. And so they're using web technology, but they're using in a hybrid way. So the web is still there and it's still super important. Email, it turns out, is important for a marketing loop in a lot of ways too. So some of these technologies, I think, are immortal. What you have to do is you have to watch... What are the user's interests? Have they come into conflict with the app owner, the, the superpower, the Facebook or Google? And I think they have because of reliance on advertising. And, you know, Zuck is very frank about this. He says, well, we want to be free. We don't want to be just for the well-off people. It sounds sincere, and I believe him. <laughs> uh, he says, you know, advertising is, is a proven model, and uh, we, we use it. And I buy that, too, since Brave is, is building an opt-in, consent-based private ad model. We don't just assume our users and tens of millions more to come in the future will all fund the visible web that they browse. That, that would be nice if they did and we're open to it. We give them a means to do that anonymously through the, the bat. But it turns out if you look at the scale of the web, 80 billion or more in the US on digital last year, 200 billion globally, people aren't, aren't going to make that up out of goodwill donations, in my opinion. It's just not prudent to count on that. So, Brendan, is there anything that we can count on? Uh, maybe some lessons from the past? So, the, there are a couple of general uh, things I think we can learn from the past. One is you don't get to clean the slate. Um, any evolution uh, to Web3 is going to consist of some steps. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because there's, there's a lot of content to conserve that no one wants to recreate, no one can afford to recreate. 
people talk about third party cookies. What if we had not allowed them from the start? It turns out, and you'll hear this from, you know, sort of sophomoric uh, experts. Well, there's a lot of ways to trap you. Any kind of network communication um, system that has a l- large degree of, of communication and different kinds of communication leads to things like fingerprintability or side channels that leak information. And they're right. Uh, there's no way, there's no doubt about it. I mean, David Wagner, UC Berkeley prof, once said to me, ah, confidentiality is really hard to enforce. You, you can't really yeah. do it perfectly. And that's right. But what you can do is you can take down the, the sort of abused common techniques. Yes, that are, for sure. Make it very hard, you know, right? And those techniques are common because they, they use certain uh, economic choke points like cookies. And if you take them down, which uh, Safari did to some extent, and which uh, mobile apps do because they, they put cookies in separate jars for each app, each web views a cookie jar is separate by app from the others, uh, you end up with uh, a, a, a higher cost to do tracking. So you, you change the economics. Nothing is ever, you know, impossible. Tracking is always possible. It just becomes too expensive. And you try to lead people toward a better mode of engaging with users than tracking. So I think one of the things that will help Web3 is embracing uh, the current web and then finding evolutionary paths that are actually win-win scenarios, not not sort of temporary yep. lose and then win later. Lose by becoming an expert, lose by having a big cognitive hit or a system administration burden. It's not going to scale to a lot of people unless it's super easy to use and automated. So there's a higher burden, not just on user interface, but on automation, I would say. You have to get rid of that in order to get people to climb higher on the hill toward Web3. And then the the last thing I'll say is connected to that point about the beauty of peer-to-peer payments. I love it, but people get their address wrong. They, they Some people sent BAT or Golem or First Blood tokens to our our, our sale address where you were supposed to send Ether well after the sale was closed. And there's just no way to claw that back. I, if you send uh, cryptocurrency the wrong address, you may not get it back. You probably won't. And, and that's unusual for people who are like average normal credit card users. They think, well, can I get it back? Can I dispute the charge? Don't I get per you know, Reg Z or whatever, 120 days or longer? And um, they don't. Yeah, so it sounds like what you're essentially alluding to is having some software that you especially trust uh, and then you have a trusted relationship with that can do a little bit of the curation for you or give you some indicators of qualities of the application. Like, for example, the Apple App Store has certain thresholds that have to be or certain check marks that have to be checked uh, in order for you to download an app from the App Store. I think reputation systems, and the App Store is, is, is you know, an important uh, tastemaker, and people think it's sometimes unfair, but they have, to, they have to protect the bulk of their users. Maybe they're too conservative, right? So maybe your tastes are different. There should be, I think, multiple stores that you can get things from. But if you're into um, uh, something like a smartphone, as a consumer, you're pretty much stuck with the main store. People, expert people can sideload or they can root their phone. That's really a tall order. What we need is a competent platform uh, in the browser, a web platform that can talk about these things without being subject to the gatekeeping and the sort of store uh, rules. I hope with things like Blockstack, with uh, other web tree approaches, that we evolve toward a, a, a system that isn't tied into walled gardens that allows creation and consumption and curation to all be done in a more symmetric or peer-to-peer way. Despite how far we still have to go in the evolution of the internet, a lot of what Brendan envisioned early in his career 
is starting to come to fruition. Some of the vision came true in a nice way, like the indie web or the just get started with five lines of script you may have copied from somewhere that you half understand. That sort of bye-bye-the-yard nature of JavaScript is still there. Now, people today use big frameworks and tools. They use TypeScript. Um, but JavaScript still has that programming from scripts to, to the large, in the large programs property. And it has it about as well as anything I've ever seen, in spite of all the messy you know, browser incompatibilities and ugly APIs, some of which weren't my fault, right? The standards bodies yeah, sure. have different people with different approaches, and you, you get a sort of motley patchwork API in full. Um, but it, it's it's got that anybody can hack. You're kind of still in the 90s in that, and I hope there's a move back toward this. People can just, perhaps this move will happen through peer-to-peer approaches uh, like DAT, the Beaker browser advocates that, and we're putting it in the Brave, that there's a sort of symmetry between the client and the server. We shouldn't be locked in the walled gardens. It's sort of like take the best properties of the land party where you play Quake and put it together with Minecraft and put it together with web site or app building and have people do it uh, as well as consume it, create as well as consume. So the, JavaScript is, is still important there. In fact, it's more important. I think it's going to go for another 23 years. Who knows? I, I think it's not just a sentimental uh, browsers are immortal view that I have. I think it's a practical view and uh I hope it, it continues. I think it's important for you know society. But uh, do you think it's realistic people will adopt these technologies and this more egalitarian web? That's where uh, I, I think there will be a, a need for mass adoption, at least critical mass adoption. I, I don't mean that we have to take over 51% of the browser market with browsers that have you know uh, Web3 uh, in them. It, it could be as small as 10% or less. It, it turns out this is another important lesson from the past. You, to move a market, you just need the the stubborn minority, as Talib calls it. Like, uh, why is all salt halal and kosher, even in the U.S., when the minorities that want halal or kosher salt are just a few percent each? Well, it's it's because it doesn't make sense to make three kinds of salt, have stores stock three different skews of salt, label them differently, et cetera, et cetera. So all salt is kosher and halal. And and this stubborn minority effect can be observed on the web. Firefox didn't ever get higher than 27% of the market according to, I think, net market share in 2011. And stat counter was closed. They have different methods. And, and that, that was after Chrome. But when Firefox was coming up in 2005, we restarted the ECMA standards body. We restarted JavaScript standardization. Before 2005, in 2004, with Apple uh, at first shy about announcing and Opera, as Mozilla's public ally, we restarted HTML5. We, HTML5 was, was being uh, dropped by the W3C in favor of XML, which was going to be a whole new world, uh, XML web. It's going to replace the HTML web. And a bunch of us in 2004, in the spring, even before Firefox 1.0, we said, a uh, friend from Apple and friend from Opera we, and a couple other people, we said, let's do HTML5. So small share browsers restarted standards. And they did it by putting some fear into Microsoft. Um, wasn't total fear. There were, you may remember there was a distraction uh, in Flash. Microsoft came out with Silverlight, haha, as a plugin to compete with Flash. Yeah. Java was still out there and being used to some degree. All the restaurant websites in the early noughties were Flash. But Steve Jobs rightly said, no Flash on iOS. Uh, this, he, his thoughts on Flash 
it had some things that were not accurate. Like you said, Flash was was um, an old technology. <laughs> Mac OS and iOS are based on Unix. It's even older. Uh, but you know, he, his fundamental point was if you have two runtimes, you have this sort of meta layer of meta crap that runs across OSs. It's always going to be inferior. It's always going to be a second mouth to feed in terms of battery life and so on. So Jobs said no to Flash, and he was right. And that stopped Flash on mobile and helped the web because yeah, uh, one that. of the his team, uh, some friends of mine on the WebKit team, Safari team, founding members said, okay, we, we don't need Flash. We can do that with WebTech. And then, you know, the designer said, okay, give me rounded corners. What's, what's wrong with the web? It can't even do rounded corners. Hmm. You know, g- give me touch events. Give me 60 frame a second touch tracking. Well, that, that's where iOS, as I mentioned earlier, ran far ahead of the web standards. But things are catching up finally. So, you know, we get back to the problem of the incompetent web platform. It has to be advanced rapidly to match the native stack. It has to avoid locking in the app store as gatekeeper and trust anchor and these are ongoing threats i don't have a you know there's no silver bullet here we have to keep working on it and we have to get we have to get that the critical mass of stubborn minorities it's probably a plural set of minorities it's it's like the halal and kosher minorities but it doesn't have to be 50 percent. another trend brendan's led over the years and continues to champion with brave and the bat is open source where source code is made freely available and may be redistributed and modified Looking back to how we've moved away from closed source reflects the continuing evolutionary process of technology standards, while looking ahead reveals what may come next. Open source is now kind of uh, normalized and even a tool of capital over labor, some would say, I think accurately. You're supposed to show your resume on GitHub and uh, it reduces the cost of, of software quite a bit. A lot of the pieces are lying around. You don't have to get proprietary solutions. We were coming up at, uh, doing the Mozilla uh, founding in 98 when Eric Raymond had written the famous Cathedral in the Bazaar essay or book eventually. Um, and was you know, Linux was commercialized and people were saying, hey, maybe open source makes sense for commercial software. Because up till then it was like, no, we must keep secrets. No, you know, there's, there's no advantage to giving it away. Except for Unix, which was given away to universities. Uh, there were commercial licenses, but it was sort of a freemium model for universities. And it spread the Unix DNA far and wide, which is really good. It forked a lot, too. Um, I, I'm a fan of Berkeley Unix. It was hard to sell to some people who were looking backwards or had their head in the sand. But over time, the transparency, trust, the ability to get the community. I think open source is also great for auditing and learning and for even things like verifying that a build has the right bits in it. And I, I wouldn't go back from it. Uh, everything else gets harder if you do closed source. You know, the, the hackers like Charlie Miller, Xerox Charlie on Twitter, he says, I haven't used source code in years. I, I use machine code. I'm a hacker. I don't need to, <laughs> to, read, to read source code to crack, to crack your system. So you're not protecting any secrets using, you know, compiled machine code. Um, even DRM is cracked routinely. So what, what are you doing by keeping things secret? You're not really helping. Open source, on the other hand, gives you uh, like a great recruiting filter to be mercenary about it. It gives you a learning opportunity for people coming in who did get you know credentials at a fancy college. Uh, it, it gives you uh, trust and verification. You do get more bug fixing. You do get sometimes just people fixing the easy bugs, but you fix more easy bugs and you fix enough that the product's better. So uh, there, there is an advantage to getting more people involved in the source code. There's a management and community and sort of core team um, leadership challenge there too that's evolved. We've gone, I think, from benevolent dictators and individuals uh, running projects toward core teams because it's, it's, it's more sustainable, it's more balanced, it looks more uh, you know, fair. Um, but sometimes you have 
you still have benevolent dictators and they're pretty darn important. Um, Guido, Guido Van Rossum just, just left Python. Uh, I think Python will, will survive. And I think that's the other thing. You can burn out on open source. People have realized this, especially if you're doing it for free, you should get paid. It is a tool of capital over labor in part, so get paid. Don't, don't uh, settle for nothing. Is that something <laughs> that, for free. Is that something that you think blockchain fixes going forward? Well, people use blockchain as you know this uh, pixie dust. I, I think uh, it ultimately we're talking about human affairs and and uh, the proper relations between people, which is like practical uh, reason, aka morality. So, blockchain can help; it's a tool, but people have to stick up for themselves, and and that's where I you, you'll see people I know, young people talk about unionizing, you know, programmers. And uh, it's going to be hard. I don't know if it'll succeed, but I think there is something that has to be done on the side of labor against capital. I'm not a Marxist, but there is something that has become unbalanced there. So blockchain could help because one of the things that, as a tool, it could help is one of the things that facilitates is, is you know, no intermediaries on the payment side or on uh, sort of various kinds of attestations to your quality and reputation. Um, it, it, it's not perfectly anonymous, on the main blockchains, but you can do good work and you can rise fast. And when I was coming up, uh, you know, people went to college, even grad school, like I did. Then people I knew, like Michael Toy, Jimmy Zawinski, didn't go to college and did fine. And now people are just skipping it because <laughs> why pile up the student loan debt? If you have skills, you should get busy and get paid. And so I think there is a, uh, an opportunity to use blockchain as a tool for labor uh, to get, get your just desserts. Hmm. While we're on the topic of using blockchain to pay labor, you know, I read that as a, a Brave browser user, if I opt into seeing ads, I would actually be able to get paid for viewing them with basic attention token. It, it struck me as an interesting parallel to universal basic income, which many people seem to be convinced that blockchain makes possible as well. Yeah, it, it, the idea and the, the certainly the, the, the smooth downhill path that's the easiest for the user is that the user gets paid. We're giving them grants already. And when the ad revenue is there, they get 70% for the user private ads. But that revenue, that those tokens flow toward their sites and creators, unless they go through an extra layer of you know, proving they're not a fraud actor, and then they can take it out because we do want them to be able to take it out. We think most users will let it flow. And it's, it's not obvious that it's enough money to live off of, you know, the first estimate would be how much ad spend is there in the US, 80 billion. How many individuals was that aimed at? Maybe 250 million. So that's like $320 per year per user, gross ad spend, not enough. On the other hand, it's not uniformly distributed. Some people are whales. There are many species of cetaceans out there that are much more valuable as advertising uh, subjects and, and that they buy more valuable goods that they, when they convert on a high-end luxury car ad, there's a big, big uh, piece of revenue there that, that the ad represents. So, you know, the, the fair price for human attention hasn't been set. But if you're talking UBI, I think you're not saying humans have to pay attention to be valued. You're saying people get a certain amount just for being human. And that that has to be a fixed amount that's sort of, you could live off it. It wouldn't be a great life, but you could live off it. That I don't think is the bad. There are a couple of reasons why. I mentioned crypto being hard for normal people because you can't like dispute the charge if you send it to the wrong address or the, you've lost it. Um, with, with BAT, we don't hold custody. We're, we're not in the middle of the BAT flow. The user does, and then it goes through this anonymity shield to a settlement wallet that um, 
Uphold uh, manages and does the exchange to anybody who wants to be paid in fiat, which has you know benefits for a lot of people who don't want to hold crypto or take the risk. Mm-hmm. So to get to something like UBI, you have to make crypto easy. You'd have to maybe solve the key recovery problem, if not allow a custody option. I think a lot of people would be happy not to have custody because then they wouldn't be the one that had to worry about losing it or having it hacked. Um, these are deep problems that uh, a lot of projects are struggling with. Some projects are kind of ignoring them. I think going for the, the hardcore tech, uh, interesting computer science problems, distributed system problems. And I admire that, but I think you have to get usability or you won't scale. So something like UBI has is, is got to be uh, easy for average people to use, even people who, like I said, are, are not computer savvy. And um, that is a taste of this, but we're all in this giant learning adventure. So I, I don't want to push BAT beyond its design point, which is about attention. It is about this closed loop between advertisers, users, publishers, where the publishers often want to clear it to fiat and then the BAT recirculates and we can control the velocity. But I do feel strongly that advertising is such a huge you know, uh, expense, like $200 billion, uh, globally last year on digital and it's going to be a trillion in 2020, they say. I don't know wow. if that's true. Uh, it's, going to, it's crossing television. It's growing fast. And television is wow. kind of being e- eaten by the internet. This is the other thing that you know, software eats the world, Mark Andreessen said. Well, the internet eats software. JavaScript eats programming <laughs> languages. Um, and and uh, you know, uh, internet eats television. So uh, we're going to see... Uh, it's all about what, generalizability what, and distribution, right? Yeah, and, and competence. And, and if, if you had some really cool AR win... That, super lightweight goggles that fit on your head and it could gin up a whole new uh, sort of 3D world that the web is not competent at building right now. I, I like WebXR and I like all that stuff, but really I advise Otoy. They do you know, compute, uh, uh, Avengers quality, Westworld quality, special effects. You need a whole new set of content languages. It can evolve the web. It's going to include the web on 2D surfaces in the world. Mm. It's going to include JavaScript. We see that in the Westworld. Yeah, Fake, fake screens. Um, it's really funny. They're all React.js. Um, oh, but but, but um, it's going to need a lot of, of new, new uh, innovation on the content language side. And that could be a, more of a clean slate approach, less evolutionary. But I don't see those goggles. I don't see them taking off to the mil- tr- you know, billions of users in, sure. in the short term. Is there a, a risk in your view if we don't value human attention? Sure. I think that people say, oh, you should, you should value attention. And then people like my pal Corey Doctorow will say, you can't just reduce people to numbers and human attention can't be treated like that. He, he's right. Uh, di- there are you know, different uh, premium attention models that should use more tokens or, or use some other way of measuring it. Ultimately, if you're talking about something that values humans like UBI, you have to do it based on what I would claim is the right metaphysical priors. Otherwise, you're, you're treating people as objects and you're going to get in trouble just on a legal basis. People are not things legally. Um, but uh, if you can express uh, and keep the fraud down to a dull roll, because fraud is always a problem in these systems. You know, UBI will have fraud. Um, basic attention token, we have people trying to take grants and sibyl them to a fake YouTube account. We catch them in settlement. Uh, If you keep the fraud down, and I think you can do it with a simpler, cleaner system with blockchain at the right points, then uh, I think you can have a better better value for how we spend our time. Just think about, like, if you're reading an article, a long read, having no ads at all is strictly better. If the ad can be inferred using machine learning on your device and put in a separate private tab, which is our model, 
and not while you're reading, after you're done reading. That sounds even better to me. And I think advertising is still trying to shotgun your attention. It's trying to distract you from the main first party material. And that's, that's a mistake. But advertisers are kind of stuck using the shotgun because that's what evolved out of the 90s. <laughs> wow. Brings me back to my Evil Dead persona, right? Yeah. Uh, the shotgun and chainsaw. This has been the Internet 3.0. I'm your host, Zach Valenti. If you like the show, subscribe for new episodes and please consider leaving a top rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on Twitter. Brendan Ike is at Brendan Ike. Ryan Shea is at Ryan E. Shea. And I'm at Zach Valenti. Specifically, I'd love to know who you'd love to hear on this show. Music in this episode is by Andrew Apple Pie. Hear more at andrewapplepie.com. This episode also features music by Ketza and Delay available at freemusicarchive.org. You can find out more about the show at internet3podcast.com. And if you're interested in the future of decentralized apps, either using them or building them, you can learn more at blockstack.org. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.